All right. Well, this morning, I'm going to start us off in a series that we're going to be continuing through Advent. And in this series, what we're going to be doing is talking a little bit about who we are as a church. And so for some of you, that will be maybe learning about that for the first time. Um, for many of us, it might be remembering together just how we fit on the faith landscape and then some of the values that are important to us. And so to do this, I'm going to start us out from a story from the Gospel of Luke and then move us into a time of talking about who we are and then maybe a little more practical conversation just about like the state of the church and what I see going forward for us here for this next year. So the, the scripture we're going to be using is from Luke chapter 5, verses 37 to 39. It says this, it says, Jesus told them this parable. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins, and no one after drinking the old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. So many of you know I lived in Israel for a couple, a few months, actually back in 2007, 2008, which hard to believe that's like so long ago now. But one of the places that I visited was this place called Nazareth Village. So if you're, if you're here in Michigan, like you know like Greenfield Village, it's a little bit like that. It's this sort of like living history museum, but like the ancient Israel version. For those of you not in uh, Michigan, this is like a recreation of what Nazareth might have been like when Jesus was growing up, but it was a little bit hokey, right? So there's these costume characters, there's mules, there's tour guides and all the things. But one of the things that they showed us in this village was an ancient wine press. And so a lot of the area around Nazareth is rocky. And so it was just like solid rock in some of the ground. And so what the wine press looked like was essentially a big hole in the rock in the ground. And what they would do is they would take the grapes, they'd put them in the hole, they'd smash them or press them, and then they would often just leave them there for a few days for that first stage of fermentation, right? Because grapes start to ferment immediately on pressing and they start to release a lot of gas. And they call that stage the tumultuous stage of winemaking. And then after that first phase, they would then take the juice and they'd put it into clay jars to be stored and let the juice continue to ferment. However, sometimes they would need to transport the wine at that stage. And so rather than putting the wine into big clay jars, they'd need to put it into wineskins. And those wineskins were made out of partially tanned goat skin, right? So they would kill and skin a goat, fold it up, sew it, right? And then they would fill it with that partially fermented wine from like what would be the neck, and then they would tie it off. Now, there is no wineskin, old or new, that could hold any of that new wine in that very first stage of fermentation, that time when it's in that tumultuous stage, because it was just too gassy, right? If you put the wine into any kind of wineskin at that point, it would just like blow up like a giant balloon and burst. However, in the second stage, right after that first little bit is done, the pressed grapes, once they've had a few days to ferment, new wineskins could hold that wine because they had a little bit of stretch and they could blow up, but it wouldn't be to the point where it was just going to, you know, spill out all over the place. They had enough stretch in them to hold it and not burst. And then the old wineskins, the ones that had already been used for wine like this, they'd already been stretched out prior, they'd become cracked and they'd become brittle and they'd become dry, and then they couldn't be reused because they'd lost their elasticity, right? So if they're used again for holding that wine that's still in the process of fermenting, they would just bust open. Right, so old skins can only be used for old wine. New wine skins can only be used for new wine. 
So that's the metaphor that Jesus is using in this story. And what he seems to be doing is communicating his belief that God was doing something new through the stream of Judaism of which he was a part. Right, something that was so new that it couldn't neatly fit into older religious structures. And it's not that the older religious structures were necessarily bad, right? Old wine is mature, and I'm told that very old wine is very delicious, but I wouldn't know because I've never been able to afford wine that's quite that old. <laughs> I don't know how old old wine is. As uh, Dr. Sarah Emanuel mentioned last week on Zoom, she was talking about how in Jesus' time there was a lot of social turmoil and political unrest, and people in the midst of that were trying to figure out the best ways to be faithful to God and to each other in this really highly charged context. And so how I read Jesus is very much a part of a reform movement within his own tradition. Right now, there are reasons that those of us who follow the teachings of this particular rabbi do so that I'm not going to get like really deep into right now. But I just think it's helpful to know that Jesus saw him, himself as a part of this Reformation movement that needed some imaginative thinking, right? That needed some new wineskins in order to cast off some of the corruption that inherently builds up in all religious systems over time. And it's interesting to me that in this parable, something had to die for the new wineskin to be created, right? A goat had to die or some like animal. And sometimes when reforms are happening, whether that's in faith traditions or in other contexts, you know, a political context, even at your work, some things have to go away or break down in order for the new to come forth, right? Like another example that came to my mind would be like, we see some of those growing pains in the auto industry. Those of you who work at Ford or GM, right? We're trying to shift from this like gasoline-based car model to electric. And so there's things that are breaking down as other things break in. So Jesus ends his story by saying, no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. And what I think he's saying here is that many people who are used to the old wine, and it's already really good aged flavors, right, the maturity that it has, they find the young wine sometimes to lack depth. And so they're a little bit cautious about it, sometimes a little dismissive. But young, less ripe wine has the potential to be very fine wine. Right, or at least hold its own for a different group of people. So what does this mean for us? I think right now in the Christian tradition, we are in the middle of what we call one of these new wineskins moments. Now, for those of you who have been around, you've heard us talk about an um, a, a academic named Phyllis Tickle. She was an Episcopalian. For those of us who are a little bit newer, Phyllis, um, she passed away like maybe in 2016 or 17. And she was a friend of Ken. She was a friend of our church. Like as I was being outed and we were planting, much like David Gushy, she was in pretty constant contact with us and praying for what was going on because she had a sort of eagle-eye view of what was going on on the landscape of American Christianity. And she was like, oh, there's something, there's something that's brewing here. There's something that's fermenting. And she used to talk about how about every 500 years or so, um, the church would have like a giant rummage sale. That was her, her term, a big rummage sale. And the, they would just sort of throw out the bits that start to hinder us from becoming all that Jesus hopes and wants at the church to be. Right now, some of the traditions that we have never go away, right? They grow right alongside the new. But the things that have proved harmful or unhelpful to the church start to be questioned and discarded, at least by a significant number of people. And so these rummage sales, as she called them, often started decades before the most significant changes happened. 
Right? There was a guy named Jan Hus was advocating for church reform like a hundred years before Martin Luther went and nailed his 95 theses on the Wittenberg door. I'm not even sure that that quite happened, but you know, we know, some of us know that story. Um, decades of wrestling happened before the great schism happened between the Eastern and Western churches in 1054, right? These are like these big new wineskin moments and they take time and they're really tumultuous. And so for about the last three decades or so, you could certainly quibble with that. There's been like new wine a-brewing in, um, in the Western church landscape. And there are some things, there are some sacred cows, so to speak, that are gonna have to die so that we can carry this new fermenting wine on our collective pilgrimage, right? At least that is those of us who are called to carry this new wine, which I have always believed that Blue Ocean is among those. So I think all of us who are here know that in the white Western Christian landscape, reform is desperately needed. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't be here. And there's what I've been calling a great deconstruction that has been happening and that's going on across different traditions. And many of us have undergone it, or maybe we're even still undergoing it and we're trying to navigate it, right? We're just trying to rid the faith that's precious to many of us of all those things that have started to be harmful, right? The, the deep anti-Semitism, the white supremacy that pervades it, the homophobia, the justification for dominating, colonizing others, the diminishment of women, the glorification of Christian nationalism and violence, the unhealthy expectations placed on men with rigorous gatekeeping for what is like properly masculine, the neglect of nature and the collective responsibility to it, Right? I think all of us can name the toxic elements of Christianity because it's become so uncoupled from the healthy connection to the creator and to spirit that many of us find life-giving. Right? And so what is needed are new wineskins. Right? Places not only to deconstruct, but to reimagine our shared stories and how to be in the world without that baggage. And it doesn't mean that we are going to get that project 100% right. right. We won't, but we do our best. And we need creativity for like being able to see what is left once some of that trash is cleared, right? What is precious? What's worth holding on to? What's worth breathing into? And how do we communicate it? And how do we make it so that it's helpful for our kids and our kids' kids to continue to thrive in this world? So in the midst of this deconstructing that is happening and this breaking down, there's also new life that is springing up right alongside all of that, right? The spirit is breaking in. And I have always seen our church as kind of among some of the first of this breaking in. And I don't mean that in like a grandiose way, like, oh, we're gonna like change the world, but more in this like, let's tend this little fragile mustard tree that's growing out of some of the ashes, right? So that we can bear witness to a different way of being Christian and we can pass that witness along to the next generation because I think it's worth passing along. I think we have something that's both useful and practical to offer. And we're not alone in this. We've been spending a lot of time. I spent quite a bit of time over the last five years trying to find friends on this journey. And there are friends. It's just that we're all kind of doing this in these disparate places and trying to find each other. And the thing is, is that these historic shifts that happen, they take time. Right? And you and I may not even live long enough to see the completion of these new wineskins, even if we live to be 99 years old, which is what my grandma Gwen is. And hi, grandma, if you're on today, she might be. 
And if we carry Jesus's metaphor all the way through, I would venture to say that we're still even in that like tumultuous phase of fermentation, right? That's kind of where things are at, where there's all this bubbling going up and this like, oh my gosh, we got to release all of these different gases that have been bad. And we're trying as quickly as we can to stitch together the new wineskins to hold it as fast as we possibly can. And there's much to be done and we don't always have the tools that we need at hand. We have to create them, right? So let me give an example. I have nieces and nephews, and I talk with a lot of you who have kids, nieces or nephews, or other small people in your lives that you care about. And we know there are scant resources for helping us teach kids our stories minus this baggage. I hope it's okay if I tell this story, Andrea. I was, um, I was reading from the Bible children's story, was it the Jesus Storybook Bible, I think, to AJ last winter or something, AJ's three. And I used to give out that Bible a lot. It's the best that I can find because at least the characters have had brown skin, right? But I'm reading it to this three-year-old and I'm like finding myself like, uh, that's like really not appropriate or oh my gosh, there's so much violence in that or that's not how I would frame that story for a toddler. And it just was like, oh my gosh, as I was going through each one, I was like, this is a nightmare for parents. I haven't found a storybook Bible that doesn't need serious editing because those resources don't exist. I did just read last week that Reverend Jackie Lewis, who is one of my favorite pastors in the US, she's part of TFAM. If, you don't, if you're on Twitter, you gotta follow Jackie Lewis. She's in Manhattan, she's awesome. She just signed to write a new children's Bible. And here's what she wrote on Twitter. She said, no white Jesus, no anti-Semitic illustrations, no glorification of suffering. I was like, hallelujah. And I wrote back and I said, thank you, thank you. Also, do you know of any good Sunday school curriculum? I don't think it exists, right? This is what I think our Sunday school teachers are doing like a heroic job of taking what is fine curriculum, it's fine, and then just like having to shape it on the fly in order to make it better, right? I see Molly like nodding, like it's really hard. And that kind of on the ground creativity is what I mean when I say this is part of our task as a church. It's literally helping create and edit the tools that we can pass to others. Same is happening in the world of worship. You know, I told David when he came on board, just change the lyrics if needed. I don't care what it is, just change them. Cassie did that liberally. So did Rachel when she was leading for a year. Susan Schaefer, when she was on staff, was writing new songs. I know she preached on that this summer to try and better reflect changing theologies. There are collectives of people doing it, but it's happening in like such disparate places. We're having to like find each other and figure out like, how do we do copyrights? And how do we help like, you know, support each other in this endeavor? The larger church needs like composers and lyricists and writers and artists. Many pastors who preach use canned sermons off the internet. Maybe you know that, sermoncentral.com. If you wanna feel really depressed and discouraged, go on to sermoncentral.com and read through some of those. They're pretty painful. Now, none of our staff has ever done that because we see part of our task is helping reshape how we tell the stories, right? And to do that, it takes, it takes time, it takes study, it takes meditation, it takes processing, because we want to be able to tell our stories in ways that are as faithful as possible to the context and that are practical and that help us consider things from different angles, right? That we're trying to use voices that are outside the, the traditional theological academy in order to be able to see things in a different way. I also just want to note, there's a lot of trauma in our congregation. 
right? I would say in the American church at large, but some of it's, some of it's church trauma, some of it's trauma from all kinds of things. And so I try and stay really up to date on like trauma-informed ways of teaching, and I know Caroline does as well. And we make mistakes sometimes. Sometimes I have hurt people, and we just really try and model transparency and humility and commitment to growth, right? This, like a different way of trying to be leaders in this space than what we've seen in a lot of other parts of the church. And to do that, we just have to have a lot of grace with each other because we have a diverse community and we have high levels of trauma. And we know that liberation is a collective undertaking, right? It's something that we're doing together. So working on being a healthy community that can model this kind of love and integrity and that can balance justice with mercy and coming up with tools in order to better do that, to me, this is like the time in which we live and this is the task that we've been given. Right? And so over the next few weeks, um, Caroline and I are going to hit on some of the other like core values and like theological um, bits that have been important to us as a church. Next week, Sarah Emanuel, the Jewish scholar, is going to be teaching again. And that's also helpful because decoupling American Christianity from anti-Semitism is among one of our highest priorities, especially we share a building with the Jewish Reformed community. I know my, my preaching has changed dramatically in the last eight years, even as I've continued to learn and to grow. So many of you, as we've been starting to meet here in the fall, you've been just asking me like, okay, just how is the church doing? Like nobody like has really talked all that much about it, um, you know, this side of COVID. And so I thought I would just maybe do like a, a little brief fireside chat to talk about where we're at and maybe a little bit about where we're going. Um, so we all know we just got back up and running last spring, just every other week. Pretty soon after that, Ken made the decision to retire a little bit early, which we did that last week and that felt, um, that felt really good for him. And so just those of you who know me, you know, I tend to work pretty methodically on like big next steps. Like I can see the things that we need to do to kind of get ourselves back up and running and thriving again. And so I'm trying to work on those things, sort of one major thing at a time. So the very first thing that I was focused on over the summer was just making sure that we help Ken retire well, right? That he felt honored and he felt loved. And I talked to him for about an hour this last week and he went on and on about how great the retirement party was. And I think it was really healing for him. I think he felt really blessed by everybody um, and all the work that went into it. So I think that's a big thing that we did well together. And two weeks ago, I didn't get to say a public thank you to the Retirement Planning Committee, which was chaired by Jen Nelson. And you guys did an incredible job, really. I couldn't have done it without you. So then my next focus, which was also going on with this, was updating the masking policy. I think we all knew that that probably needed to be reconsidered, but I, I did a survey in July um, just to get a feel for the congregation, let everyone say um, any concerns that we had or any, any different feedback. And so I think actually now that, I mean, this is our first week back with masks optional, I, I think this will help us be able to connect with newcomers better. I think it'll help us connect with each other better. And I think that we've put enough like, money and energy into Zoom Church to make that viable for people when that's um, maybe not as viable for them to be in person. And so I want to say Zoom Church, like, we see you. We know you're there. Um, give us some grace as we're, we're still really trying to put more energy into it. And we love you. And we're glad you're with us. Um, what I would like to see in the next uh, 
I mean, as soon as possible, but I would like to see us back up into church every week in person as soon as we can. Right now, it's just not possible because we, it would put just way too much strain on our volunteers, right? Because we didn't meet for more than two years. Like, here's where we're at. Maybe I'll just put the, uh, put the notes down. <laughs> two and a half years is a long time to not be like running a lot. So most churches, they have an attrition rate of like 12 to 15%. I think in Ann Arbor, it's a little bit higher just because it's a pretty transient space. And so that's, that's normal for us as well. It's like people move, like the Schaefers went to Ohio. And like Wally and Kate, who we loved, oh, Wally was such a great volunteer too. Um, they moved to Florida and I think they're super happy there. They might even be online this morning. And so we've just lost people naturally to that, but we haven't had a lot of space to regain because we hadn't been in person that much, right? So that, that's been a real challenge to be able to figure out like, okay, how do we, how do we start to rebuild? The thing that's been encouraging to me is that the core of who we are from two and a half years ago is still here. And like all through the pandemic, I feel like we loved each other well. I feel like our community, I think we have something special. I think we really care about each other. Um, like if you were here for Ken's retirement party last week, it was just like a big celebration of who we are. And that for me is really special. And so we're in this little phase here where it's going to be a little bit tricky, right? We, we kind of need to be meeting every week in order to grow and to get some more people. But in order to meet every week, we kind of need like more people to be able to do volunteer and to make church happen, right? And so there's this little bit of a dance that is happening. I liked what um, Lisa Ruby said when we were talking a few months ago. She's like, it's like Blue Ocean 3.0 that's happening, Right? Eight years ago, we, we planted this church. We were Blue Ocean 1.0. During the pandemic, we're Blue Ocean 2.0. And now it's almost like relaunching as Blue Ocean 3.0. And you know, when we first planted, we just had a very simple request. Serve and give, if you're able. I want to say, we don't usually talk about giving here, like very little as a congregation. Um, and so if this is your first time here or you're newer, I'm sorry, this isn't meant for like you. Um, and I know many of you do give very, very generously, and we appreciate that. But like even just a little bit of extra giving would be helpful to get us up and running. So just in my family system, we talk pretty plainly about money, so I'm sorry if that's a little uncomfortable, if that's not your family system. But I feel like we're a church community together, and we're all using our collective resources, so it's helpful sometimes to just know where things are. Um, I'd say for this year, where we're at right now, we, our expenses have exceeded our income about $31,000. And so I would look at that by the end of the year of probably being about 40. That's not even looking at it compared to budget. That's just looking at expenses and income. Now, you know, Ken retired, and so that takes some of that pressure off for next year. You know, so we, we would make that up in some way. But here's the rub is that um, I'm spinning a lot of plates I got a whole lot going on. I'm working six days a week. Uh, I'm pretty tired. I need some help. <laughs> so I told Rachel, I was like, I don't want to cry. I cried on the way in, so I wouldn't cry here. <laughs> I'm all right. Um, it would be really helpful to get a part-time pastor in. We could do some pastoral care, maybe a little preaching, help with small groups. Oh man, we need small groups up and running. Even if it's like, just having people to dinner, like for a potluck at your house once a month, like that would be super helpful. Um, 
So to do that, we probably need about $40,000 or so of more sustained giving over the next year. Now, the board approved the budget this last, it'll go to the congregation for, you know, discussion and approval later, but the board was thinking that we'd probably look at considering like a deficit budget, even if we need to, to try and hire somebody. But it just takes the pressure off of, um, like, I don't want to recruit somebody and be like, eh, but it'll be contingent on like, you know, how much the church grows. Like, that's, that's a hard way to bring someone in. It'd be much better if we had a little bit more of a stable way to do that. So I guess it's just a simple ask. If you're able to give a little bit more, Rachel and I are going to. I also think it's helpful for people to know we run on a really shoestring budget. Our biggest expense is our staff. And I make, I say it's like the high end of the median of what teachers in Washtenaw County make. So like a high school teacher who's been working for several years is about what I make. And so I think it's fair, but it's not extravagant. And we just don't have that many places to cut. And I think it's also helpful for people to hear that like Rachel and I are also invested. Like we, since the beginning, have been about among the top 10 givers of the church. She works in community mental health. You know, it's not like we have a ton, but we believe in this church and really love it. So for whatever that's worth, I think it's sometimes helpful for people to see that their leaders are actually invested and in this too. All right. I don't love giving those talks, but I think it's kind of just helpful for you to know. So receive it as you will. Like if that was hard, like by all means talk to me, but also don't feel like undue guilt or pressure. Like you can only do what you can do. Does that make sense? And we are incredibly thankful for all that people do. Do, do? Oh God, I'm like such a middle schooler sometimes. I'm so sorry. It's who I am. <laughs> so I think as, as before we head here into our, our collective um, prayers, I think maybe let's just take a minute. And the, the verse that was coming to my mind is a verse actually that Phyllis Tickle gave to us like 15 years ago to Ken and I. It's from Matthew. This is Jesus says, Therefore, every teacher of the law who's become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like an owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. And I thought maybe we could just take a minute and meditate on like what that means like for where we are and who we are as a church. Let's just take some deep breaths. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and that you would just breathe into this community, that you would fan the flames that we've been given here. Jesus, I know that you love our community even more than we love our community. And I do think that we have something to offer the world. And so we just make our creativity and our willingness and our openness to who you are um, available to you. And I ask that you would guide us and that you would lead us and 
you know, if there's some like different course changes that we need to make that you would help us to discern that. Lord, I ask that you would just, um, yeah, just breathe into the prophetic element of what is going on in these churches that are trying to create these new wineskins. God, I ask that you would bring the right people along who are excited about this project. I ask that you would help us to widen our embrace to be able to um, just like really, really bring people um, to a space where they feel valued and they feel like what they're doing is being used in a way that is um, meaningful for the work that you've called us to do. So Jesus, we just thank you so much for who you are and we just ask your blessing on Blue Ocean 3.0. Amen.